Psalm 67, begin there just before verse 1, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we attend to your word, that your spirit would illumine our hearts and minds, that we would see and savor what these people sung, that we would sing it with them, this great psalm, that the nations would be glad and sing for joy because you've been gracious to us and made your face to shine upon us in your son, Jesus. We pray this morning that you would work in us, that keep us attentive to the word, make us good listeners and hearers of your word, and change us radically so that our hearts and minds are constantly singing this song, that the nations would be glad and sing for joy in Christ. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was first called into ministry as a youth pastor. It was the year 2000, and my home church at the time asked me if I would, I was in seminary, I had been in seminary for a year, and they asked me if I would become their associate pastor for high school and college ministries. And I was pleased to do that, not because I ever saw myself in pastoral ministry. In fact, I didn't ever think I'd be in pastoral ministry. I was going to seminary for the purpose of going to do my PhD and become a Bible college professor. That's what I wanted to do. And they called me into ministry, and I knew I loved the students and I loved to preach, I loved the gospel, and I wanted to make Jesus known, and so I agreed to do it um, it quite joyfully. And early on in the ministry that I was in, I knew that the good news of Jesus saving me from my sin was something that needed to be shared with others. I knew this meant that the church at least needed to have a missions program, Right, that just like they have a Sunday school program and a small group program and a women's program, they needed to have a missions program at least. I was even in support of lifting up missions as one of the most important programs in our church. I gave financially to missions. I led short-term mission trips. I was enthusiastic about our annual missions conference. I um, occasionally sat in on the missions committee meetings. And I was super happy to see people go long-term into missions. That was all true of me early on in ministry by the grace of God through the work of his spirit in my life. I wanted to do all this because I knew the Father had shown undeserved loving kindness to me by sending his son Jesus to live the perfect life I failed to, to pay the penalty due to me at the cross for my sin, and to conquer sin and death by raising from the grave. So that I might raise with him. And I wanted to communicate that to other people. I knew the Holy Spirit had given me life. He'd given me the gift of faith. I had been adopted into Christ, into the family of God, so that I could call the Father my Father. And I wanted others to know Jesus so they had this privilege as well. And by the grace of God, early on in my youth ministry, I met a man named Brad Buser. Now, Brad Buser is a man whom some of you are familiar with. You've heard of him. He's been here. I talk about his sons who we support when I pray. I pray for Brandon Buser, who went to an unreached people group called the BM People and has spent several years there learning their language and their culture and becoming a part of their tribe and now leading them to Christ, and there's now a church planted there. I not only told you about Brandon Buser, pray for him, we've also supported and prayed for Brooks Buser, Brooks Buser is another son of Brad's who went to the Yembi people group. And he lived there for several years, learned the language and culture, became part of the tribe, led them to Christ, planted a church. He's now at the stage where he's trained elders and deacons, translated the New Testament into their language, handed the church over to them, and is now going to oversee other missionaries doing the same thing. 
And I've talked about them, and, and maybe you've heard me talk about Brad Buser. Brad Buser is now the head of Radius International as far as um, the guy who's currently leading our ministry as a director that we had the privilege in helping start. But Brad was a man who early in life heard the call to go, by the way, by the call I mean the command in Matthew 28, to go and take the gospel to an unreached people group. And so he went, and he went to the Ateti tribe, a cannibalistic people group, whom he moved his young wife, and who was eight months pregnant, and their young son, who had already been born, into this cannibalistic tribe, and they lived there among those people for 20 years. Planted a church, saw them come to faith in Christ, translated the Bible, came back. And then Brad went to missions. And Brad was speaking about what he had done and about the peoples who hadn't heard. And um, I was talking with him and wanted to follow up and ask more because I knew missions was important. I wanted to have more information. And I told Brad, I think missions is an important program in the church. And Brad stopped me. He said, are you equating the mission of the church to make Jesus known among all peoples? Are you equating that with small groups? Or women's ministry? Or men's ministry? Are you making that equation like there's this program and that program and that program and then there's missions and that's another program? I said, well, yeah, isn't it? But I mean, it's the most important program, Brad. And he said, no, no, missions is what the church exists to do. Missions isn't a program of the church. Missions is the mission of the church. And I wasn't fully understanding what he meant because I said, well, isn't worship what the church is called to do? But I knew it meant something different than how I was treating missions at the time. And Brad said to me, I, I tell you what you need to do. You need to read the book, Let the Nations Be Glad by John Piper. If you haven't read that book, I commend it to you. Go buy that book. It's probably 10 bucks. You can probably get it on Kindle cheaper. And read Let the Nations Be Glad. I remember being wrecked by the first chapter of that book. Piper made this statement which helped me understand what Brad was driving at. And which absolutely revolutionized my understanding of the mission of the church. What John Piper said is that missions is not ultimate. Worship is ultimate. Because God's glory is ultimate. But then Piper went on to say that there are many people groups where the worship of the Lord does not exist. Thus missions exist because worship doesn't. Do you hear that? We are called to worship the Lord first and foremost. And as an overflow of our worship, we are to bring that worship to people who don't know him and don't have that privilege. That's what missions is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. The mission of the church is not just to worship Jesus and keep that to ourselves. As this great gift and privilege we have, we also, as the mission of the church, want to take that to others who don't know that privilege. Thus, missions exist because worship doesn't. Here's Piper's direct quote. He went on to say this. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. Now think of what that means. Our task as God's people is to worship God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we're to bring that worship where it is not. And at this point in my ministry, it's about 2000, 2001, I began to see how central the mission of God is to the whole Bible story. Because what happened to me is not that I just saw this is an important responsibility and task or the important responsibility and task of, of the church. I saw that the mission of God flows to the entire story of the Bible. God created us in the garden for the purpose of worship. He created us to reflect his glory back to him. To worship him. To be image bearers. That's what image bearers do, right? They reflect the glory of someone back to them. And that's what he created us for. But Adam and Eve, instead of worshiping the Lord, turned their worship on themselves at the urging of Satan. And when they did, God did not give up on his mission. 
In fact, it's at that point that God made the most glorious promise of his mission. He said to the serpent as he cursed him that I will send the seed of the woman who will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. In other words, God said, I have a mission to redeem these people to worship me. And we see that carried out through scripture as we see that that seed, that son who would come, that Messiah, that Savior who would come to bring us back to the worship of God, that he would come through a woman. He would come through humankind, if you will. He would be a man. And not only that, in Genesis 12, that promise is narrowed in as we find out that he will come from Abraham's family, who is the nation of Israel. In other words, he won't only come through mankind, he will come through a specific nation, and that's Israel. And not only that, we're told later on in Genesis that he'll come not just from a specific nation, which is Israel, he'll come from the tribe of Judah. So here you have mankind, a nation of Israel, the tribe of Judah, and then we're told in 2 Samuel 7 that he'll come from the house of David. And so the promise narrows in all the way through the Old Testament as it drives to this one, this seed of the woman, this son of God, this son of man, whose name is Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, of the line and the house of David. And that's the story of the Bible. And then what does Jesus do? He sends us to go out and tell the nations all about the fact that he's come so that the nations would return to his worship. And then what do we see the closing chapter of the Bible as Jesus is exalted among his people forever and people from every tribe and tongue and nation gather around to sing worthy is the lamb who was slain. So that's the story of the Bible. It isn't a program of the church. That's the purpose of God in human history. It's more than an add-on to your life. It's what life is all about. See, the purpose of God in human history is to bring the exaltation of himself in his son to all peoples. It isn't something we tag on. It's the kind of God we worship, a God who is a missionary God who wants to reach other people. That's who God is. I don't think that we understand that often enough. That's what he's doing. I don't think we reflect on that often enough. Did you know that the mission of God to spread the worship of God across the globe was even the basis of a hymn that Israel would sing in worship? This, this is the thing that ought to stop us in our tracks when we come across something like Psalm 67. The Psalms are the hymn book for Israel. You hear that? Okay? This is their hymn book. You know if you go to the church, if they have pews, which we, we don't have here, and they have hymnals in the front, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? And they open the hymnal, and this is the song book for the church. Well, the songbook for Israel here is the Psalms. And it later became the psalm book or the songbook for the entire of the entirety of the Christian church. But here's their songbook. And we think Israel was just about themselves and not about the nations. But here in their songbook, one of the hymns they sang, one of their psalms, was about Jesus being known among all peoples. It's about all the nations worshiping and being glad. So look with me at Psalm. 67. And let's walk through this and look at their song. I want you to hear what they're singing and as they're singing how they're praying because in this song they're asking the Lord for things. Look at what they're asking for. There are three stanzas. The first two verses of the first stanza. Verse three through five is the second stanza and verse six and seven is the third stanza of the song. But listen to what it says. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. Why? Why do they want that? First stanza, the end of it, verse 2, that. Here's the end for which they want that. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. And by nations, they don't mean geopolitical states. They mean people groups. Every ethnic group. That your name would be known among them all. Now look at the second stanza. And in the second stanza, we have an inclusio. You may never heard of an inclusio. Inclusio is a Hebrew literary device. And it's like, it acts like bookends. The beginning of it and the end of it, and they tell you about what's going on in the middle. You follow me on that? So you have this inclusio in verses 3 and 5, but let's read through that. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Now go to verse 5. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Do you see it? It's bracketing. Now look at the middle. Verse 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. 
For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Now look at the last stanza. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. What are they singing about? Show us grace, Lord, so that all the peoples know your way and your saving power. Show us grace. Show your righteous rule and shepherding across the earth. Why? So that all the peoples of the earth praise you. Give us the harvest and continue to bless us. We know we can trust you to bless us. And all the ends of the earth, let all of them fear you. Israel isn't singing about herself here. She's singing about the worship of God among all peoples. This isn't just something that comes along that's new in Jesus. This is the story of the Bible. This is the song of Israel and the song of the church. And it's clear what they're praying for. This song, in other words, is about missions. And God's name being worshipped by every tribe and tongue and nation. And with that said, there are four prayer requests we're going to look at. Four prayer requests in this song we're going to look at. So as we look at this missionary song, I want to go over these four requests in as briefly as I can. I haven't preached in several weeks, so i got a lot to say. <laughs> just, just so you're ready. All right, the first one. The first prayer request is give us good news. You ready? It's the first prayer request. You can write it down that way if you want. Give us good news. Look at verse 1. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. See, I want you to remember these psalms aren't just to be read, but they're to be meditated on and prayed and sung. And when the, what, what does the psalmist, the worship leader, the songwriter... What does he call us to sing and pray? He calls us to sing and pray first. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. That's the first prayer request. Where is that from? That isn't a new saying, is it? That's from the Aaronic blessing. In other words, the brother of Moses, Aaron, used to pronounce a blessing on the people in Numbers chapter 6. And here's what Aaron would say. Moses told Aaron from the Lord, speak to Aaron. The Lord is actually saying to Moses, speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them. Now, listen to what they would say to them. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That was the blessing. And this blessing, I contend, is the central blessing of the entirety of Scripture. This blessing is where the deepest, most enduring, and eternal happiness of the people of God is found. And what is the blessing? May God be gracious to us and make his face to shine upon us. That's the central point of this blessing. It, what does it mean for God to be gracious to us, though? If we break it down, what does that mean? It means he shows us great kindness that we don't deserve. And what is the great kindness that he shows us, that we're asking to show us? The great kindness that we're asking for, the great undeserved kindness we're asking for, is that he would make his face to shine upon us. Now, why? Why, why is that the greatest kindness we can know? Why is having God's face shine upon us the greatest kindness we can know well it's the answer is because the face of god is the pinnacle of the glory of god which ought to beg another question why is the face of god seen as the pinnacle of his glory in other words when you see these things you ought to stop and break down and start asking questions of the text why is his face shining upon us the most gracious thing he can do for us and what does it mean for him to sh- show his face to us or shine his face upon us? And, and why is that, the, if that's the glory of God, why is that the pinnacle of God's glory? The answer to that is found in the nature of who God is. In other words, why does a psalmist come up with that kind of language? Show your, shine your face upon us. We understand God is spirit. He doesn't have a face. So what, why does he use that language? Because God is first and foremost the Father. Hear that? And how does that play in anything? Jesus tells us that when he, as, when he came as the Son, Jesus says he came as the Son, he's eternally the Son, to reveal the Father to us. 
And I want you to get a hold of that. As the Son, Jesus wants us to know that he's revealing the Father to us. Thus, God is not just some nebulous, impersonal creator and spirit out there who judges and saves in a kind of disconnected, legal manner. He is the personal, loving Father sending his Son to gather his children to give them new life and joy. Understanding that, I want you to think of the relational dynamic of the face of a father. This is where we get it from. As a child, there really is nothing worse, is there, than than when your dad turns his face away from you in disgust for your behavior or attitude. You guys know what it means, right, for your dad to turn his face from you. It isn't just that he literally turns from you. It's that his face is not shining on you any longer. It's not approvingly looking upon you. It's not demonstrating joy in you. He's angry with you. He disapproves of you. He's turned his face from you. When your dad's face is downcast toward you or turned from you, it can actually be devastating. I've noticed this with my children. When my children do something well or when they do something poorly, they almost immediately look to see my face, to see the reaction on my face. I mean, I watch my son play basketball, and he'll go and make a shot, or he'll take a shot and miss it, and every time, as soon as he makes it or misses it, he immediately looks in the crowd to see my face. Am I happy with him? Am I disappointed with him? There's nothing worse than to see my face turned away from them, and nothing better than to see my face favorably looking toward them. They know in that instant when my face is turned to them that they are now, right now in this instant, my glory and my joy, and I am theirs. And as a result of our sin, our, holies, our holy sorry, Father's face has turned away from us. Our relationship with him has been severed and broken We are wandering around lost, abandoned, alone, and ashamed because of our sin under the condemnation, the just condemnation of God because we have done what he commanded us not to and we have not done what he commanded us to. God created us to be be in an intimate and joyful relationship with himself and we feel this so deeply, we feel this deeply So deeply that we look for other ways to find relational approval and intimacy and joy. We look for it all the time. If you don't think you're longing for the face of the Father to shine upon you, even if you're an unbeliever and that has been perverted and turned, then you're not paying attention to the way that you search for God's approval in various things. And you may not call it God's approval, but you search for some transcendent face to shine upon you when you search for it in success or marriage or parenting or popularity or the approval of others. And what's amazing is that every time you grab a hold of that sense that other creatures, other men's faces are shining upon you, The moment you grab a hold of it, even then you still feel empty. And you grope around for more of it. And it becomes this endless cycle of idols that we create to find this relational approval and intimacy and joy. And we just get caught up in this. We even create whole systems of religion to find ways to earn the approval of our idols. Our deep and unrelenting dissatisfaction with the success and approval of this world demonstrate that we've been created for something transcendent. That's why you can have the richest men in the world ask the question, how much money is enough? And they say, just a little more. That's why the greatest athletes in the world can say, I know I won this year, but I've got to win next year. That's why the parent, no matter how well-behaved their children are, the one time they make a mistake or sin or mess up, the parent's like, what have I done wrong? Because we are relentlessly seeking after something greater than what we can achieve here because we want the approval of the Father, but we've, in our sin, turned that on other creatures. 
all these glorious moments that we experience in our search for this were meant to just be small glimpses of what we have with the Lord and the Lord alone. And instead, we've turned them into the end, and it's ultimately always a disappointment. And the reason that is is because the Lord is ultimate. Of all the great gifts in creation, none match to the incomparable worth of the Creator. And nothing, nothing is more glorious than having the Creator, the Father, having His face to shine upon us. Nothing. And the psalmist knows this, and so he calls the congregation to pray and sing to the Lord, to the Father, begging Him to be gracious and make His face to shine upon us. They know that it's an act of unmerited kindness on the Father's part to shine his face upon them. They know that because their sin has forfeited all rights to such a gift. And frankly, if we want to be completely honest, they also know that God would be unjust to answer their prayer to be gracious to them and make his face shine upon them. Sinful man does not have a right to the great reward, which is God himself. Sinful man deserves God's face being turned away. That would be justice. So how does the prayer get answered then? How does the prayer get answered so that God's face shines upon us? How does sinful man receive the grace of God to rejoice in us as a father rejoices in his child and to allow us to rejoice in him and his joy in us? How does it happen? The Father sends Jesus, his Son, who is the joy of the Father, to live perfectly in our place, to pay our penalty upon the cross, and to raise from the dead, conquering sin and death, and to send his Spirit to adopt us as sons of the Father and call us to cry out, Abba, Father. Think of that. The Father gives his perfect, glorious, sinless Son to save sinners, to save us. The Father at the cross turns his face away from the only one who ever deserved to have the Father's face shining upon him. Do you hear what happens at the cross? At the cross, as the eternal Son of God, Jesus is hanging there, the only one who deserves the approval of the Father with the Father's face shining upon him. At the cross, the Father's face turns from him. Why? So that the Father can shine his face upon us. The Father sent his Son so we could turn his face away from him. So that the Father could turn his face upon us. And Jesus voluntarily went to the cross and to the painful, horrific experience of having the Father's face turned from him. So that... He could be the firstborn among many brothers so that he could save us. And he did that joyously. That's why Paul says what he says in 2 Corinthians 4, and I I want you to hear this. In verse 3 he says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the good news of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus Christ and his face is where the face of the Father shines upon us. It is in Jesus that the prayer in this song is heard. Hear that? When they pray, be gracious to us and make your face to shine upon us in verse 1. Jesus is the answer to that prayer in that song. It is in Jesus that God finds joy in hearing this psalm, Psalm 67. With that said, let's see what the psalmist expects will be the outcome. And this is the second request. You're going, wow, this is long, but they get shorter. Second request, let the good news of God's salvation spread from us to all peoples. You hear that? Let the good news, so give us the good news, and now let the good news of 
that salvation spread from us to others. Look at verse 2 of Psalm 67. We'll start in verse 1, but may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Selah. What is that word? It's like a musical note telling us the song is about to crescendo. It's about to go up. The intensity of the song is increasing. So maybe God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Now the intensity is going to pick up in the song that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. See, here's the result of God's face shining upon us. Our joy in knowing the love of God in Christ overflows to others. As God blesses us in Christ, it overflows to others. You hear that? That is the expected outcome of the gospel. Not just that we would receive the good news that the Father's face is shining upon us in Christ, but that that would overflow from us to others so others would receive that news. God becomes known known among all peoples. When God graciously and selflessly overflows in love to us and his son, then God's saving power is known among all peoples because the kind of love that God creates in us is the kind of love that must, that necessarily overflows selflessly to others in making known the good news of Jesus to the world. That's why he can say things like in 1 John 4.10, well, in 1 John 4 when he says God is love, and then in 4.10 he says, here in his love, Not that we first loved God, but that he first loved us and gave his son. You hear that? Here's his love overflowing. Gave his son as a propitiation, a satisfaction of the wrath of God for our sins. Brothers, in the same way, we also ought to love one another. The way that God has in unmerited, undeserved kindness overflowed in love toward us in saving us, we also ought to overflow in love toward other people. That's the kind of love God creates in us when we're a new creation because it's the only kind of love God knows. God only knows selfless love which overflows to others. And that's what he creates in us. Which is why somewhere like 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 can say something about the fact that the love of Christ compels us. Why? Because we know that we've all died what do you mean we've all died? All our lives have been given up. For Jesus died for all so that we and him would no longer, what, live for ourselves. But for him. God is a missionary God and he saved a missionary people. Hear that? He is a missionary God and he has saved a missionary people. He doesn't save any other kind of people. God's greatest gift to us is the worship of himself and Jesus by the Holy Spirit because it's there that we experience the face of God shining upon us. Could there be anything more glorious? Could there be anything more glorious than to have the face of God, the Father, shining upon us eternally? That's why I can let all goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. Right? The body they may kill. I have the greatest gift in Christ and the Father's face shining upon me. What else do I need? And this is what Jesus brings us and this is what we declare to others. And that's just the first stanza of the song. So let's move to the second and third stanzas and the third and fourth prayer requests. Let's look at the third prayer requests in, the, in verse 3 through 5. And, he, and here's what the third prayer request is. It was before let the good news of Jesus' salvation go to the nations. Now it's let the good news of Jesus' sovereign rule. Not just his salvation, but his sovereign rule cause joyful praise among all peoples. Look at verses 3 through 5. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the people with, equities and, uh, with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. There's an emphasis at the heart of this psalm that we are prayerfully beseeching the Lord in song to let all the peoples praise him, to let all peoples, every tribe and tongue and nation, be glad and sing for joy. And what will give all the peoples? 
What will give every tribe and tongue and nation great joy? What will cause all the peoples to erupt in joyful praise of the Lord? What causes that in them is they will all sing for joy when they know the Lord because they will know, what does he say? That he judges the peoples with equities and guides the nations upon the earth. Now here's the question that ought to pop up to you right away. Why does God judging the nations cause joy? You would think if the people's heard, God is going to judge you with equity, they would go, that sounds awful. Not break into song rejoicing, right? If by judgment, the psalmist means judicial condemnation, that he's going to condemn, condemn all nations justly, then this would cause a kind of servile fear in the nations, not a kind of rejoicing and reverent fear. You follow me? But that's not what the psalmist means. He doesn't mean just condemnation. What he's talking about here is what will happen among all peoples as they become under the righteous rule and shepherding leadership of the Lord. See, our governments are unrighteous, aren't they? I don't care how great your government is. It's unrighteous. It does not uphold justice and equity for all peoples all the time. It doesn't. Our shepherds often fail to guide people well. And I don't care how good the shepherd in a particular church is, he will fail. He will disappoint you, guaranteed. So who is this good shepherd who will guide the people well and who will sovereignly rule them with equity? Who is this king who will bring great joy to all peoples through his righteous rule and guidance? Well, look at Isaiah chapter 42. If you have your hand there in Psalm 67, keep it there. And I just want to go to Isaiah briefly. There's more than one place. We could look at Isaiah 11 as well, but we're going to look at Isaiah 42. Isaiah 11 also makes this abundantly clear if you want to read that later. Verse 1. This is a prophecy about the coming Messiah. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He's talking about Jesus, and that's applied to him, by the way, in the New Testament. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. In other words, he's not going to take the weak and snuff them out. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. This is the idea that all people rejoice under finally having a just king. Would we not? A king who is just to everyone all the time? Absolutely, we would rejoice under that king. We long for that king. We treat our political leaders messianically at times because we hope they might bring it in and then our disappointment with them grows and at the beginning of their administration, they're hugely popular. By the end of it, they're a massive disappointment because they can never bear the weight that we place on them in putting our hope in them to be a just ruler because they never will be. Only Jesus can do that. And it goes on to say, Verse 5, thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you, this is speaking to Jesus, the Lord speaking to Jesus, the Son, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kedar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Sela sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. 
Why are they saying, let the peoples all over the earth break out in joy? Because he's prophesying, the Lord is prophesying through Isaiah, this servant, this son, who will come as a covenant for the peoples and rule them with equity. That's talking about Jesus. And that's what we're singing about in Psalm 67 when we say, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equities and guide the nations upon the earth. That's Jesus. We're asking the Lord to make his face shine upon us so that all peoples might know his saving power, so that all peoples might receive and exult in the righteous rule and leadership of the Lord. Do you hear what Israel is singing? Israel is singing for Jesus to come, for Jesus to save them, and from them to save the nations and to establish his righteous rule across the earth, which will certainly be the cause of joyous song coming from all of God's people. And that's what we sing now. What's amazing about what we sing now is we are singing in light of the prayer of this song being answered. See, Israel's praying for this Messiah to come when they sing it. We're praying and singing it knowing he has come. And we're praying with them that this hope in Christ would spread to all peoples. That's why Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want God's rule to spread across the earth so that all peoples would be saved and know his righteous rule and rejoice in him. When we pray this and sing this, we ought to personalize it. You know that? I was thinking about how we'd personalize it. Maybe we should say, let's make all the peoples praise you sometimes when we sing or pray on our own into let my neighbor Marvin praise you and sing for joy. Let my sister praise you and sing for joy. Let, let the guy next to me at work praise you and sing for joy. Let the BM people group praise you and sing for joy. Let the people to whom Alyssa is going to take the gospel praise you and sing for joy. Lord, give me boldness and grace to open my mouth and speak of the good news of Jesus to those around me. And Lord, open blinded eyes around me to see the glorious sun and sing for joy. Lord, let the support I'm giving these missionaries be a support to them and use those gifts and my prayers and let their work somehow become a great harvest of souls among this unreached people group so that they may be glad and sing for joy. Lord, give me the faith to give up treasuring my stuff here and let me store up my treasure with you so that I might be freed to joyfully and sacrificially give to see the nations be glad and sing for joy. Lord, give me the faith and courage to lay down my life, to go to Radius International and get trained, to go to an unreached people group so that people who are in darkness, a people from whom your face is currently turned away, a people who are caught in the slavery of idolatry and who don't know you and your saving power and your righteous rule and your glorious shepherding, so that those people might, for the first time in the history of the world, hear of your son and might see his glory and sing for joy. This is a prayer and a song for the nations. As the Baptist, 19th century Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said in reflecting on this song, our love must make long marches. And our prayers must have a wide sweep. We must embrace the whole world in our intercessions. See, let's make this psalm our prayer and our song. Let's pray that our love makes long marches, and that our prayers embrace the whole world. Let's join with John Piper when he prays this, fight for us, O God, that we not drift numb and blind and foolish into vain and empty excitements. Life is too short, too precious, too painful to waste on worldly bubbles that burst. Heaven is too great Hell is too horrible. Eternity is too long that we should putter around on the porch of eternity. Let's look at the final stanza and the final request. Fourth prayer request is this. And it's found in verse 6 and 7. Let the good news of God's salvation cause a harvest of people who fear the Lord. Let it bring a harvest of people who fear the Lord. Look at verse 6 and 7. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. 
This phrase is interesting at the beginning, the earth has yielded its increase, because it's the only verb in the past tense in this entire psalm. All the other verbs in the future tense, here's one in the past tense. The earth has yielded its increase. Now, some scholars argue it's a phrase that looks back on how God blessed Israel in a recent harvest as evidence that we can know he will bless us again. Some scholars, however, also argue that it's a past tense verb that's actually being used in a future sense. That also occurs in the use of the Hebrew language. Either way, no matter which group of scholars is correct, the point seems to be that God has and will bless us. God has blessed us with great harvest, and the fact that fact guarantees he will again. And I think this prayer finds its prophetic fulfillment in John chapter 12. In other words, there's a point in Jesus' life and ministry when I think Jesus was meditating on Psalm 67 and responding to it in something he said. So keep your hand at Psalm 67 and look at John 12. John chapter 12. And I want you to follow what happens here in verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Now, here come Gentiles, people from other people groups. So these came to Philip, verse 21, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So here are the Gentile nations coming to see the one upon whom God's face shines so that his face might shine upon them. We wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. The Gentiles here are coming, and they all want to see Jesus. They want to see the Messiah. And in that instance, it's as if Jesus, remembering his many times singing Psalm 67, that he reflects on verse 6 and 7 and says the following in John 12, 23 and 24. Look what he says. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's talking about his crucifixion. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Do you hear it? In Jesus' approaching death, the moment in which the glorious, self-giving love of God is most clearly displayed in all that God has done, in that moment, the great harvest of the Gentiles has come, the great harvest of the nations of the peoples. The earth has yielded its increase in the death of the Messiah. And what are his disciples to do with it? Listen to John 12, 25, 26. Whoever loses his life or loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his, hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. See, we're to follow Jesus in giving up our lives and self-giving love to make him known so the nations will be glad and sing for joy. We are to tell of Jesus whom all the ends of the earth will fear, whom they will revere and exalt and bow before and rejoice in because through him they know the saving power and righteous rule and leadership of the Lord and through him they have the face of the Father shining upon them. We're to pray to the Lord of the harvest to raise up workers for the harvest field for it is white unto harvest and it is white unto harvest because in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the great harvest, the salvation of all peoples has come. And I don't want to conclude without reflecting on the great joy-inducing promise found in this psalm in verses 6 and 7. If you notice there, the end of Psalm 67, he says, God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. You hear those promises? Maybe God will bless us. If God gets around to it, he might bless us. God will bless us. He shall. I'll repeat it twice. He's our God, and he will bless us. Think of the promises of blessing that are ours with God, who is ours. God isn't just some distant creator. In Christ, through Jesus, he is our God. He is our Father. His blessings are ours. It is a certainty. If you trust in Jesus, you will be blessed with the smile of the Father of all creation upon you. What did you do to deserve that? You did nothing. Nothing. You didn't add to it anything. In fact, all you did was bring sin to the table. 
All you earned or merited was God's just wrath. God's turning his face away from you. Jesus paid it all. All of it. Jesus is the one who deserves the Father's face shining upon him. And it is in Christ voluntarily taking upon himself the wrath due us in the Father turning his face away from Jesus that the Father turns his face and shines upon us. All you need to do is believe, trust, look to him, know he's your salvation, and you are blessed with the smile of the Father. And it's this great blessing that we have the privilege and duty to carry to all all peoples. That's why Sovereign Grace commends the Perspectives class to you, which they have their booth back there. Why do we commend the Perspectives class to you? Not because we think that everything in the Perspectives class is golden, but because we think that the main thrust of the Perspectives class, that you spend several weeks meditating on and marinating in the glory of God among all peoples being the mission of God through the Bible, that you meditate on that for several weeks. That you take it in and eat it up and make it a part of who you are as a Christian so that it defines you because that is what you're saved for. That's why we, Sovereign Grace, praise weekly for missionaries. That's why Sovereign Grace prays weekly for the lost around us. That's why we participated in helping start Radius International to train missionaries to go to unreached people groups. That's why Sovereign Grace rejoices in sending out Alyssa today. And most importantly, that's why Sovereign Grace exists as a church. We exist to bring about the worship of God the Father in Christ the Son by the power of God the Holy Spirit and to bring about that worship among all those who don't know, who don't know the Lord, especially the people groups around the world who've never heard of him. We exist as a people on mission together because there are too many corners of the wor- world where worship is not. We exist as a church to declare the God, that God has been gracious to us in Jesus, that he's made his face to shine upon us so that the Lord's love might overflow from us to others in hope that all peoples of the earth might be glad and sing for joy. That's why we exist. And I pray that God works in us such that that's what we're known for. Let me pray. Father, we ask. We ask that you would work to apply your word to our hearts, that we would sing this psalm with Israel, with the church, this psalm that is fulfilled in your Son, this song that the face of the Father might shine upon all peoples. Father, would it be our song, our prayer? Would it be what we give our money to, what we spend our lives on? what we pray for. Father, would you cause our love to take long marches and our prayers to spread and encompass the earth so that your Son might be known among all peoples for the salvation and joy of those peoples and for the praise of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.